Thank you all very much for coming in such large numbers, although obviously you came one by one. Um, we're very fortunate to have here today um, the Governor of the Bank of Japan. Um, this is a very special time in the world economy. It's always interesting, but obviously at the moment it's particularly challenging. And Governor Shirakawa has been in his post for nearly four years now. Uh, he has a very long career in the Bank of Japan. He is um, an economist. Uh, he studied his economics at, at, um, in Tokyo and Chicago. And uh, as a professor of economics at the LSE, I um, am very keen, and as you should be very keen, on central bank governors being economists. And <laughs> it isn't always so, um, but we're very fortunate to have with us today, also in the audience, um, another professor of economics who is a central bank governor. Very happy to have our former colleague at the LSE here, professor at the LSE, Mervyn King, who is, uh, who is with us also. So thank you for coming, Mervyn. And uh, we have had uh, a number of people who have been very helpful in getting this uh, uh, very special occasion together. I'd like to thank um, the, ja the Jap Japanese Embassy here in London. Many, many members have put a lot of time and effort into making this happen and have indeed uh, helped fund this event. Nothing happens for free. So we're very grateful for that. Stickard, uh, the Suntory Toyota International Centers for Economic and Related Disciplines, which I once had the privilege of chairing, has also uh, helped. And um, there's what uh, in India at least is called the life force. Mikiko Fujiwara has been uh, uh, absolutely sterling in making this um, event happen. So thank you uh, to all those. And uh, thank you to the Asia Research Center, which I have the privilege of uh, chairing here, which has also done a lot of work to um, to make this happen, and um, uh, Ruth, who is uh, here somewhere, is the director of the Asia Research Centre. Ruth Katamuri has been very active as well. So thank you very much uh, to all of you, but thank you particularly to um, Governor Shirakawa. Uh, your experience, sir, is going to be extremely important in guiding the world, but in particular it will be extremely important in guiding us tonight in our attempts to understand the world and uh, what policy can do, what policy can't do, the risks and dangers that uh, we face, the lessons that we should learn from the experience uh, around the world, of course, including and particularly your own, uh, your own country. Now, we, Governor Shirakawa will speak for 40, 45 minutes or so, and then we'll have um, perhaps half an hour, 35 minutes for questions. So you've got time to think of your questions, and in particular you've got time to think how to keep them short. So I'd be very grateful if you could do that so we can get as many possible in. The questions, um, we would uh, like to take the questions from um, anybody uh, here who is a student and a teacher and anyone off the streets of London who's come along to learn and to uh, study. Um, we're not uh, keen to take questions from the press at this stage. They get so many opportunities to ask um, Governor Shirakawa questions which they invariably take 
and uh, we thought on this occasion it's a chance to be amongst academics and students and those interested in policy, a university audience, so that's where we will make the priorities for the questions. So please uh, identify yourself when you ask and please keep it short. So, um, Governor Shirakara, thank you so much for coming and we're looking forward very much to hearing about deleveraging and growth is the developed world following Japan's long and winding road. Thank you. Uh, first of all, uh, thank you, Professor Lord Stam, for your kind introduction. Uh, I feel very privileged uh, to have a chance to talk at London School of Economics, which I respect greatly. The, actually, when I started, when I decided on choosing economics as my first major, uh, my decision was influenced by the Richard Professor, uh, the the Richard Hicks, uh, Hicks, who used to be a professor at London School of Economics. And so that my decision was partly motivated by reading the book by reading the very famous uh, the professor at this London School of Economics. Uh, it was the uh, best of times. Uh, it was the worst of times. Thus begins a tale of two cities by Charles Dickens the bicentennial of whose birth we will celebrate next month. Uh, while this famous opening sentence of the novel refers to the year uh, 1775, it also strikes a chord uh, with us in 2012. On the one hand, with all due respect to the frustration vented by the occupied protesters, the people of today's developed nations enjoy a living standard far higher than the harsh realities of Dickensian England. Uh, one of the few luxuries available to young David Copperfield, uh, <coughs> the alter ego of Dickens, was to take a plunge in the cold spring water at the old Roman bath, just a few hundred yards from this hole. On the other hand, it is also true that people feel as if the economy is in the worst possible shape. Difficult issues in their own right, such as mounting government debt, aging of population, and, uh, <coughs> and, uh, and the challenges uh, brought about by globalization are exacerbated by stagnant growth. These days, when people discuss the grim economic outlook, for developed countries. I find that Japan's experience is often cited. In the past 20 years, Japan's growth rate has been very low. As this chart uh, as this uh, the chart shows the average growth rate has declined in the past 20 years, uh, average growth rate was uh, 1%. So, steadily, steady uh, the st decline in growth rate. 
the people ask whether their economies are going to experience a lost decade or more recently, the two lost decades, like Japan. The, as a governor of Japan Central Bank, I have a mixed feeling when I hear Japan's experience referred to in such a negative context. And I should also note, for the reason I explain later, that it is not appropriate to bunch the two decades uh, together. Nevertheless, I cannot deny that this question also provides much food for thought for other developed countries. Therefore, with apology to two talented Liverpardians, Liverpardians, uh, uh, and the song that they wrote over 40 years ago, I would like to share with you some of my thoughts today on the theme is developed world following Japan's long and winding road. It will be my great pleasure if my speech can be of some benefit to you. To me, the question of whether other developed countries will repeat Japan's experience is itself surprising and appears to indicate that a significant intellectual change is now underway. At various international meetings I have attended in the past 20, 10 years or so, policymakers and academics often have not seriously discussed the issue of stagnant growth in Japan, simply dismissing it as an idiosyncratic failure of Japan's society and its policymakers to respond to problems in a swift and bold manner. Even after U.S. housing prices started to decline in the spring of 2006, this tendency remained. The following is a comment made by a U.S. official in January 2007. The financial instability that many countries experienced in the 1990s including Japan, was caused by bad loans that resulted from decline in commercial property prices and not decline in home prices. Many have learned the wrong lessons from Japan's experience. The problem in Japan was not so much the bursting of the bubble, but rather the policy that followed. When I see behind this comment, what I see behind this comment is a gross underestimation of the extent of the balance sheet repair or the leveraging required after bubble burst, as well as an overconfidence in the effectiveness of aggressive policy measures. However, comparing Japan's experience in the early 90s after the burst, bubble burst to what happened in the United States, the Euro area, and United Kingdom in the past few years, it is my impression that the similarities far outweigh the difference. What happened in Japan was not unique to Japan. The first similarity is economic performance. For example, 
the path of real GDP since the peak of respective bubbles, 1990 in Japan and 2006 in the United States, are similar. This is the United States, uh, this is Euro area, and this is uh, the United Kingdom. And the red, red line shows uh, Japan, US, Euro area, and UK. Comparison with experience in Euro area and the United Kingdom also shows similarities, despite some difference in degree. Some interesting similarities can be also found in other bubble-related variables. For example, the pace of decline in real estate prices in US after its bubble burst was almost the same as in Japanese case. Despite some difference among countries and region, overall developments in long-term interest rate were also similar, like this. Cross-country similarities was also evident in development in bank lending. The second similarity is initial responses from the authorities and economists. When a bubble is being formed or even soon after it bursts, they underestimate the problem or deny its very existence. In Japan, after real estate price started to decline, people talked about a reversal and subsequent upturn. Even after property prices continued to fall for some time, society denied the possibility that decline would lead to a financial crisis or stagnation of the macroeconomy. In the case of the bursting of the uh, housing bubble in the United States and sovereign debt crisis in Europe. The initial reaction was also underestimation of the problem. Even at a later stage, when experts agreed on the need for public support for financial institutions, such as such measures met with opposition from general public, influenced by the lingering effects of underestimation, which was also seen in the case of Japan. In particular, injecting public funds into financial institutions was universally unpopular across countries. Likewise, the provision of financial support from core countries to peripheral countries in the euro area is politically unpopular. The third similarity is the policies adopted by central banks. In developed countries, short-term interest rate declined to close to zero, and central bank balance sheet expanded enormously. Since the second half of 1990s, the Bank of Japan successfully introduced various uh, unorthodox policy measures, including zero interest rate, commitment to maintain zero interest rate, quantitative easing, and the purchase of risk asset, including stocks held by financial institutions. After the subprime loan problem in <coughs> materialized, the US Federal Reserve adopted various policy measures that were often described as innovative, 
but in fact, many of them are essentially similar to measures previously adopted by the Bank of Japan. This fact demonstrates the unsurprising truth that central banks act similarly when confronting similar problems. If there was any major difference, it was that the Bank of Japan was a lonely forerunner and had to feel its way forward, making decisions in the uncharted territory of an orthodox policy. The fourth similarity is the decline in of the effectiveness of monetary policy in an economy that is deleveraging, or in other words, that needs to address the problem of balance sheet repair. When it comes to the transmission mechanism of monetary policy in Japan, lower interest rates had previously induced an increase in bank lending to small and medium-sized uh, firms. This in turn increased business fixed investment, uh, which drove economic recovery. This mechanism did not work, however, after the bubble burst. Similarly, in the United States, a decline in long-term government bond use has not been fully transmitted to decline in effective rates of mortgage loans because borrowers with low credit scores have not refinanced at lower interest rates. In Europe, Spain is a prime example. Bank lending rates have risen due to higher interest rate for covered bonds, reflecting a deterioration in the quality of real asset collateral. I have gone through some similarities between the current state of the US European <laughs> economies and Japan's experience. Needless to say, there are also differences. The first difference is the fact that Japan never became the epicenter of a global financial crisis. The most important uh, reason for this is that the Japanese authorities did not allow the disorderly failure of financial institutions. In this regard, the most challenging time for Japan was 1997, when the brokerage Yamaha Securities, with assets of 3.7 trillion yen, or 19 billion pounds at that time, collapsed. Yamaha Securities also had sizable presence internationally, especially in the European capital market. At that time, as was the case when Lehman Brothers failed, Japan did not have a bankruptcy law that enabled the orderly resolution of securities companies. Given such circumstances, the Bank of Japan decided to provide an unlimited amount of liquidity to Yamaichi Securities. This measure essentially enabled an orderly resolution by replacing all exposures to securities companies held by market participants both domestically and overseas uh, with exposure to the Bank of Japan and so prevented the materialization of systemic uh, risk. This was truly, truly a tough decision for the Bank of Japan. It was made without knowing whether the institution was solvent 
or insolvent, and eventually resulted in some losses. I would say, however, that benefit of preventing systemic risk from materializing far exceeded such costs. As a result, Japan did not experience a sharp and significant plunge in economic activity like the one that followed the collapse of Lehman Brothers. And negative impact from financial turmoil in Japan did not spread to the rest of the world. The second difference is the length of time before the economy was exposed to acute market pressures after bubble burst. In the Japanese case, non-performing loan assets were non-performing assets were mainly long assets, which were not marked to market. For that reason, it took more time before unrealized losses were recognized, and correspondingly, it took longer for the financial institution involved to be exposed to acute market pressures. On the other hand, in the recent case of United States and Europe, the problem started in the securitized product, product market, which enabled the recognition at a relatively early stage of losses based on mark-to-market variation. And therefore, market pressure intensified earlier than in the Japanese case. As a result, a financial crisis materialized at an early stage, and financial system instability Measure, uh, financial system stability measures were introduced in a relatively prompt manner. Examin examining these differences further, however, the plunge in output might have been limited in the case of Japan simply because the scope of the crisis was confined within country. Even if financial system measures are introduced at an earlier stage, these, these measures do not mark the end of the leveraging that characterizes an economy after the bubble burst. What happened in Japan, the United States, and Europe was basically the same. The paying down of debt or the leveraging. For the, for the purpose of considering policy responses after the bursting of a bubble, I believe that examining similarities and difference in this way show that it is most constructive to focus on similarities instead of differences, and then consider factors peculiar to each country. In order to explain these similarities and differences, I would like to comment on Japan's economy in a little more detail. Specifically, I will explain some facts about economic growth in Japan by looking at three different time horizons. First, examining the long-term growth trend. Japan is known as a country which once recorded surprisingly high growth rates, just like China has done in recent years. The peak period of Japan's high growth era was 15 years from 1956 to 1970, during which real GDP grew at 9.7% annually. Incidentally, 
This growth rate is exactly the same as that recorded by China in the period starting in the early 90s. However, the good times inevitably come to an end sooner or later for any country enjoying such high growth. This is because some of the conditions that support high growth, especially the labor supply from rural areas to cities and high rate of increase in labor force will eventually reach their peak. Second is a medium-term horizon. Although Japan's high growth period ended in the 1970s, its rate of economic growth continued to be much higher than in other developed countries. Since the 1990s, however, Japan has ceased to be a high growth economy even in a relative sense. In the past 20 years, as I said before, Japan's growth rate has been very low at 1.0% annually in real terms and 0.4% in nominal terms. This is why the past 20 years are sometimes called Japan's two lost decades. Third is very short-term growth development. Japan's economic, e economic activity plunged after tragic earthquake and tsunami on March 11th last year, but recovery proceeded at a higher than expected pace thanks to efforts by companies, individuals, and public sector. Although Japan's economy is not immune to a slowdown in the global economy, Compared to United States and Europe, the stability of Japan's financial system and financial market is notable, as evidenced by the risk spreads observed in funding market and corporate bond market. Over the three-time horizon that I have just explained, hereafter I will focus on medium-term economic development. Although I have used the phrase the two lost decades. The cause of low growth in Japan in the 1990s and 2000 were different, and it is somewhat misleading to discuss the two periods together. In the, in the 1990s, low growth was mainly brought about by the devaluing association associated with unprecedented and the bursting of the bubble. In the 2000 and thereafter, the major cause of low growth in Japan have been rapid population aging and population uh, decline. Regarding the impact of the bursting of the bubble in the first half of the two periods in question, I do not have much to add to what I have already explained. If I can point out one difference. The rise in unemployment rate in Japan was relatively limited. Japan's unemployment rate peaked at 5.4%, significantly lower than the double-digit figures which in the United States and major European countries. This is attributable to the fact that wage levels were adjusted in a reasonably flexible manner, reflecting society's preference 
to prioritize employment. That people's jobs were preserved was a positive in terms of social stability. At the same time, it also had a negative consequence. Wage levels were adjusted, but not sufficiently for the magnitude of the shock to the economy. And a situation arose in which effectively un un unemployed people retained their jobs at companies. This delayed the necessary reallocation of resources to respond to demand and cost changes after the bubble burst. The decline in wage levels also contributed to deflation through a decline in the prices of services, which are, which are labor-intensive. In fact, a significant portion of the inflation differential between Japan and U.S. reflects change in service price rather than goods price. As for the second of the two lost decades, low growth was mainly attributable to demographics, or more precisely, a rapid aging of the population. Uh, this is uh, real GDP growth rate. As this uh, chart shows, uh, Japan's performance is worse among these major countries. When we look at uh, real growth of per capita GDP, then the, our performance is almost the same as uh, other uh, major countries. And when we look at uh, the GDP growth rate per working age population, then Japan is the highest. This shows how demographics affect Japanese economy. As indicated by these figures, the most significant challenge confronting Japan is how to adjust to a rapid demographic change that is unprecedented in developed countries. To a significant extent, the decline in growth rate and deterioration in fiscal conditions are attributable to a failure to adjust to rapid change in demographics. Although forecast by economists almost always involves a large margin of error. Demographic trends are one of the few economic variables that can be projected with relatively high accuracy. The implications of population aging and decline are also very profound, as they contribute to a decline in growth potential, a deterioration in the fiscal balance, and a fall in housing prices. Given that other developed countries will face the same problem despite some difference in timing and magnitude. The economic effects of demographics deserve further study. Now I would like to focus on key questions which I pose at the start of my speech. Is the developed world following Japan's long and winding road? Of course, this is not the kind of the question that can be answered with a simple yes or no. Policy measures are shaped by not only economic factors, but also responses of society and political world. Every country has its own unique, unique complexity. 
both in social and political terms, of which outside observers have only a limited knowledge. Therefore, instead of providing a direct answer to the question, I would like to list three factors that define the length of time necessary for adjustment. The first factor is the size of excess debt accumulated before a crisis. And if we simply look at rough estimate of excess and debt, it appears that a lengthy period of adjustment is inevitably required. The scale of global credit bubble formed toward the middle of 2000 was indeed gigantic. The second factor is growth potential. In the end, whether the amount of debt assumed by the economy is excessive or not can be judged by, cons by considering it in the proportion to the economy's size. For two economies with the same amount of debt, the one with higher growth potential can lighten the burden of excess debt faster. Having said that, growth potential is not fixed and can change as a result of policy measures and the response of the society after bubble burst. In that sense, avoiding collateral damage from the bursting of a bubble became, becomes extremely important. Collateral damage could materialize in various ways. For example, in a low-growth economy that is in the process of deleveraging, social stress tends to intensify and is more likely to result in the rise in protectionism and excessive government intervention. When lending to non-viable firms continues for political or social reasons, the resultant decline in productivity growth will lower growth potential. Furthermore, Monetary policy can also distort economic incentives. Lower interest rates and abundant liquidity are necessary, but if they continue for a long time, they may lower productivity by keeping inefficient firms alive. Necessary adjustment will also be delayed if low interest rates discourage the government from making efforts to restore fiscal balance. Population decline will also prolong the adjustment of excess debt by lowering growth potential. Although these are common problems for the developed world, the decline in population growth and aging of the population profile are most serious in Japan. The rate of population growth is lower in Japan in the United States, the Euro area, and United Kingdom. More importantly, the fast pace of decline in the population growth rate has been placing burden on Japanese economy and society. Also compared to Japan, the contribution to population growth from immigration is significant in the United States and many European countries. However, this contribution from immigration could diminish if stagnation of economic activity is prolonged. <coughs> the third factor is growth rate of growth global economy. Since the early 2000, 
Japan's economy gradually overcame the post-bubble effects of deleveraging. However, Japan was also greatly helped by the high growth in the global economy at that time, growth that was almost unprecedented in the past several decades. In retrospect, during the, that period, the global economy was in the very process of creating a global credit bubble and also led by strong performance of emerging market economies. Given that growth rate in developed countries are currently restrained by post-bubble deleveraging effect, it is now of prime importance that emerging economies continue growing without causing inflation or bubbles of their own. Of these three factors that define the length of time needed for deleveraging, the first one, the initial size of excess debt, is given once a bubble bursts. But we can still influence the remaining two factors, the growth potential of individual economies and growth momentum in global economy as a whole. After the bubble burst, the priority is to maintain the stability of financial system. At the same time, it is also important to adapt the economy to a new environment and to resist pressures that would lead to collateral damage. Uh, this requires strong will and determination. Given, given the limited time remaining, I would like to wind up my remarks by briefly explaining my thoughts on the role of central banks in this difficult period. In addition to the aforementioned four similarities, there is another similarity between Japan, the United States, and European countries after the bursting of their respective bubbles. That is, opinions are sharply divided with respect to the role central banks should play. In the United States, criticism of aggressive central bank measures seems to prevail as evidenced by negative reaction by politicians to the QE measures. In other developed countries, however, central banks apparently face rising expectation and demand to deal with the situation against a background of sluggish growth. The recent discussion about the responses to sovereign debt crisis in European countries confirm this point. <clears throat> Maintaining price stability and financial system stability are important goals of central bank. But central banks are not able to solve all problems, especially in an economy characterized by zero interest rate and deleveraging. Central bank governors, including myself, have made this point uh, clear uh, recently. I would like to concur with the assessment of my respected colleague, Sir Marvin, who said that there is a limit to what material policy can hope to achieve. What can be accomplished by central banks? Or what are central banks expected to accomplish? Conversely, what cannot be accomplished by central banks? Looking back at the process of how bubbles form, the form and burst, 
and financial crisis that ensue, I would like to make the following four points. My first, my first point concerns the role of central banks in providing liquidity to banks as a lender of last resort, which is extremely important in maintaining financial system stability. If there is a sharp financial contraction, it becomes more likely that the economy will experience an abrupt and significant downturn in a short period of time. Given the current circumstances where European sovereign debt crisis has been worsening, this lesson is particularly important to all of us. At the same time, we need to bear in mind that providing liquidity as a land of last resort is, in essence, a policy to buy time. It is essential that the necessary structural reform takes place while time is being bought, the time that we can buy becomes progressively more expensive. My second point concerns the conduct of monetary policy after bubble bursts. Monetary policy, monetary easing can affect the economy either through bringing forward, bringing forward future demand to the present or bringing in overseas demand. In the former case, available future demand gradually decreases as monetary easing is prolonged. In the latter case, when economic growth in developed countries is generally weak, monetary easing in individual countries aiming at bringing in overseas demand may increasingly lead to a zero-sum game, uh, which is not desirable for sustainable growth of global economy as a whole. Such diminishing returns, however, do not release responsible central bank from the need to act. That is why, at the present time, when short-term interest rates in major economies have declined to almost zero, central banks, including the Bank of Japan, <coughs> uh, have been making effort to generate monetary easing effect by implementing um, various unorthodox measures to lower long-term interest rates and create spreads. While central banks are buying time with these measures, it is still essential to pursue the necessary structural reforms. My third point concerns the paradox of success in the conduct of monetary policy. The goal of monetary policy is to achieve sustainable growth with price stability. This is well-established principle uh, that is shared in Japan, the United Kingdom, and globally, regardless of whether an uh, inflation-targeting framework is adopted. The more successful the conduct of monetary policy is, however, the more stable prices become and the less volatility is seen in economic activity and financial market. When the expectation prevails that a stable economic and financial environment will continue for a long period of time, it is likely to encourage leverage and maturity mismatches between the asset and, <coughs> and liabilities of financial institutions. The greater the leverage and maturity mismatches are, the more exposed the economy is to a possible unwinding 
triggered by a given event. So the more fragile it becomes. The bursting of a bubble is materialization of such fragility. Before the global financial crisis, there was a debate over how to deal with bubbles, with one camp stressing the exante prevention and another emphasizing the importance of exposed measures to resolve the situation in the aftermath. Following the global financial crisis, however, all now appear to agree that the cost of a bubble bursting is unbearably enormous. Most past debates were formed while economists enjoyed low inflation rates. Focusing excessively on the short-term stability of consumer price index as a way to ensure economic stability will actually have the opposite effects of increasing instability. Needless to say, bubbles are not caused by low interest rate alone. However, when the expectation prevails that low interest rate will continue for a long period of time, it is likely to encourage leverage and maturity mismatches uh, between the asset and liabilities of financial institutions. In that sense, I believe that in the conduct of monetary policy, central banks also need to be attentive to the accumulation of financial imbalances. My final concern, my final point concerned the regulatory and supervisory framework. Looking back at how bubbles are formed, the bottom line is that it comes down to aggressive activity by both borrowers and lenders. Financial institutions' activities are influenced not only by the ex expectation that a stable environment will continue, but also by incentives created by the regulatory and supervisory framework. As for the background to such aggressive activities by financial institutions, almost without exception, regulation and supervision did not prevent them from getting involved in risky lending, which was, in retrospect, an attempt to improve their lower profitability. This was the case in the Japanese bubble period, and European financial institutions did the same thing during the formation of global credit bubble in the middle of the 2000s. Central banks and the regulatory and supervisory authorities in individual jurisdictions are currently working to reform the regulatory and supervisory frameworks. One important issue in this regard is how to find the right balance between two important tasks, restraining excess risk-taking and securing the profitability of financial institutions. The recent financial crisis has certainly left not one, as the Beatles song said, but many a pool of tears. As a result, if I may return to the Dickens quote, it feels for many of us like the worst of times. It may be a bit of a stretch to say that we are in the best of times, but it is too early to despair. Our economies have the resources, uh, not only money, but also 
intellectual and institutional capabilities to resolve the issue we face. If we can adapt the economy to a new environment and resist pressures that would lead to collateral damage, even after the bursting of the bubble, uh, we, should still be, we should still be able to find the path uh, leading to a renewed growth. What we need is determination and will. Ultimately, if we have this determination and will, we can shorten the long and winding road. Thank you for your attention. Thank you very much, uh, Governor Shirakara, for a, a very thoughtful, wise um, lecture, and we've all learned enormously from what you had to say. Um, this is now slightly less formal part of our discussion, um, questions and answers um, for the next half an hour or so. As I said at the beginning, um, we're going to ask for questions uh, from the front of the hall press have many press conferences where they can talk to Governor Shirakawa, and uh, this is not one of them, this is an academic discussion where we're trying to um, interact with one another. To keep things moving quickly, um, I'm going to take three questions uh, at a time and then ask Governor Shirakawa to respond to those three questions. For those of you who like to go on discussing uh, these kinds of issues and are uh, of the Twitter age, the uh, hashtag for this is hash LSE Japan. So you can go on almost indefinitely, uh, <laughs> um, but we cannot. We have to uh, stop in half an hour. So we're going to try to get as much uh, discussion in that period as uh, we can. So questions, please. Uh, and can you give your name when you uh, affiliation when you ask a question? <coughs> Gentleman standing at the back there, please. Uh, do please keep the questions brief and we'll get three in and then go on. Thank you. My name is Mohammed Tamal. Uh, unlike the British economy based on uh, services, the Japanese economy is mainly based on industry. Uh, in, in, in the financial crisis uh, which the world is facing, do you think that the uh, economy is based on uh, uh, traditional services or virtual services you see in Facebook, YouTube, things like this, are going to resist. Thank you. Thank you. Um, lady right at the back upstairs. Hello, my name is Lena. I would like to ask if, according to your opinion, the high government debt in Japan is contributing to its low growth. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. And uh, there's a gentleman in the middle on the third row upstairs. Uh, Mark Partington, individual. Can you um, say something about uh, exchange rate and exchange rate uh, management? You know, in the, in, when many countries and blocks seek through QE to have effective uh, um, <clears throat> reduce their sorry, reduce their exchange rate. Uh, how's Japan coping with a very high exchange rate? And uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, that's a good range. The first three got in, industrial structure, debt, and exchange rates. Um, Governor, sir, please. Uh, on the first question, uh, could you specify a bit uh, more about exactly your question? I mean, uh, 
Okay. Uh, economy is based on services, traditional services like banking, transport, or virtual, you know, services like uh, you know YouTube, Facebook, things like this. Are they going to resist in 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 such a financial crisis with no industry, no agriculture, agriculture, nothing? Thank you. Okay. <coughs> the, okay. I'd like to. Uh, I'd like to answer uh, each question in turn. The on first question, the we had that kind of discussion prior to crisis. The if the economy is diverse then those economies are less prone to financial crisis or shock. Uh, and, uh, but actually, the various industry is interrelated in terms of, uh, of uh, basic economic function. Uh, for instance, the, the financial services industry are producing and demanding various services, uh, real estate, IT, and accounting, etc. And so seemingly, the IT is a different industry from financial industry. But actually, in economic terms, both industries are highly integrated. If that is the case, then mechanical and the, 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 the Dispersed, uh, mechanical diversity of industry doesn't uh, say this economy is not immune to financial crisis. So what is needed is uh, true diversity. But uh, so uh, I don't say the service economy is less prone to financial uh, crisis. On the second question, uh, the answer to your question is yes. Uh, Japan, the, the fiscal situation of, in Japan is, uh, uh, of course, bad shape. The, there's a small caveat. Uh, people often talk about ratio of gross uh, debt to GDP. And by this criteria, Japan's uh, rate is uh, almost 200%. Uh, which uh, is greater than that of Greece. But if we look, look at net debt uh, relative to GDP, then the ratio is uh, a bit above 100%. But, although, but even so, Japan's fiscal shape is uh, bad. And uh, as I said, Japanese society is now rapidly aging. And given the level of welfare program uh, enjoyed by elderly people, the working age population or younger age <laughs> younger people are shouldering more burden. And uh, what's worse is uh, uncertainty in, involved. So people can know what amount of uh, burden they have to shoulder in years to come. And this creates uncertainty, and this depresses uh, uh, the spending. Uh, through that route, uh, the, the high debt is depressing the economy. So in recent years, I'm raising my voice uh, for the need for uh, fiscal reform.
The third is exchange. Uh, this is a very subtle issue to answer in the presence of mass media. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> the, as you know, the yen has appreciated in recent years. And uh, as I said today, uh, Japanese economy is now faced with a lot of challenges. And by that standard, the people uh, uh, infer that yen will depreciate. But actually, yen is appreciating. And uh, the, the reason why yen is appreciated is yen is perceived as the least unattractive currency amid financial crisis. The, of course, there are some uh, uh, evidence for supporting that kind of perception. Uh, first of all, the, every crisis starts uh, from the funding shortage. The, in terms of foreign currency funding, Japan is a fortress. Japan is very robust. The, we are running surplus on kind account. And net creator position to uh, the, the rest of the world is huge. The ratio of uh, net outside credit to GDP is almost 60%. And therefore, even so even in the, in the and the, even in the presence of uh, European debt crisis, Japanese yen is uh, regarded as a least unattractive currency. And uh, appreciation of yen hurts the uh, Japanese economy, at least in the short run. And we are faced with uh, uh, weakening uh, business sentiment. That's why we strengthened material easing uh, two times uh, in the past uh, six months. Uh, when it comes to exchange rate policy more generally in recent time, uh, I'm always saying the following thing. The industrial countries is now faced with almost zero interest rate. Industrial countries are now concerned by the, the deleveraging process. If countries pursue uh, if uh, the country uh, the try to increase demand by aggressive monetary easing, the, what will happen? The, in domestically, demand is not created just because the economy is faced with uh, the leveraging process. Then the, the money will flow into emerging market economies, which is the only area where economy is now growing. But uh, emerging, many emerging market economies are embracing the, the, the pegging of exchange rate relative to GDP, more or less. They coupled with uh, uh, the accommodative monetary policy on the part of uh, the industrial countries, especially the United States. Uh, the, this is translated into uh, booming of uh, emerging market economy. This is good in the short run, but eventually uh, bubble will burst, or eventually inflation will uh, go up. 
this will backfire on developed economies as well. So my point is uh, we have to think about the, the effect of, of monetary policy measures on emerging market economies and eventual feedback through its own economies. And the same remarks applies to emerging market economies. Uh, so, uh, given that the industrial country is faced with the leveraging process on a, on a massive scale, the central bank have to think about its global implication as well. Of course, each central bank is responsible for economy in each jurisdiction. Uh, that applies to my own central bank. But also, we have to think about the global implication. And that's my comment on exchange policy in this point of time. Thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, we'll take three more questions. Uh, lady at the back there. Um, good afternoon. Sorry, good evening. <laughs> um, um, my name is Helen. I'm a current um, LSE student doing economics. And uh, there have been two very interesting articles published in, on the New York Times yesterday and the day before yesterday. Mm. One by the journalist um, Eamon Fillington and another by Paul Krugman. Mm. They both compared the last decade's U uh, Japan economic performance with the post-crisis U.S. economic performance. And um, although they have different level of optimism, they do um, both agree on that Japan is actually was doing uh, the post the during the two last decades was actually doing much better than what U.S. is doing now. Uh, do you agree with that? And also my second question is because Paul Krugman used a different measurements, um, he instead of using absolute value compared to that, uh, compared to Japan's GDP per working age adult with other Western developing, developed countries, he used a relative um, ratio, which is the ratio of GDP per working adult in Japan versus that of the U.S., so the relative GDP per working adult, working age resident instead. Um, so with his graph, he actually showed that instead of two lost decades, there was only 10 years, actually between 1990 to the year 2000, when, the, when Japan's that ratio actually declined uh, versus U.S. Yeah. yeah, do you think that measurement is plausible? Thank you. Thank you. Um, that, that was two questions which <laughs> we show leniency to our own students, but that's the end of that. Um, <coughs> you can choose whether to ask this, answer the second of those questions, Governor. Um, do please answer the, the first. Uh, gentleman just here. Um, I just wanted to ask you... Could you, um, could you give your name also, please? Um, sorry, my name is Kishan. Uh, I just wanted to ask you, uh, during the 1930s, when Germany was going through, uh, you know, hyperinflation, and they introduced the Renten Mark, uh, I just wanted to ask you, you know, what are your thoughts on on introducing, let's say, if Japan is facing deflation? I know, I know, population growth and all of that, but if the expectation that the currency will not lose value, uh, if a new currency such as the Renten Mark were to be introduced, and people expectations were to change, then maybe it could restart um, inflation back in Japan. I don't know. Um, what were your thoughts on that? Thank you. Okay. Um, a gen gentleman um, just in a scarf, uh, just near to you there. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thank you. My name is Hanagaki, Japanese student of LSE. Uh, I want to ask you uh, what kind of policy is effective for Japan to get out of deflation? Thank you. Okay. 
uh, I read uh, Kruman's article with great interest, and actually uh, I talked with him uh, a month ago. <laughs> and uh, I'm a fan of reading his uh, uh, daily blog, and uh, he's always, uh, he's very smart, and uh, he gives me a lot of insight. Uh, he's very candid. Uh, the, when we compare the Japanese economy uh, with that of uh, other developed countries after bursting bubble, at least uh, Japan's performance uh, is not so bad. Uh, in that sense, uh, but I'm not saying uh, Japan is uh, uh, doing well. Uh, what I am trying to say is uh, countries uh, are faced with difficult uh, challenges if uh, the countries allow the formation of bubble. Uh, so the point is uh, which country is better uh, performing or not? Well, which country is least, <coughs> uh, is least poor uh, performer? Uh, what is needed is, first of all, what is needed is to prevent another uh, bubble. And uh, second is uh, to prevent uh, collateral damage, if I borrow the word which I use in my presentation. The relevant measure for assessing the performance of economy is ultimately the, the growth of uh, per capita consumption. That's my the, the, the thinking. The, just to look at uh, the real GDP is uh, uh, not appropriate, given that the population is declining. Just look at the per capita income is, is, is not sufficient, because ultimately, the, the, the amount of consumption uh, determines the welfare of uh, the each individual. The, the second question is uh, Wendell Mauck in 1920s. The, in the case of uh, uh, German after uh, First World War One, the problem was hyperinflation. But Japan is now uh, is not experiencing inflation. And Japan's problem is how to cope with uh, mild deflation. And but, but to be more exact, uh, Japan, the, the recent consumer inflation rate is almost uh, zero. So actually, Japanese economy is not experiencing deflation. But at least, Japan's economy is not experiencing inflation. Uh, given that environment, uh, uh, the the introduction of rent and mark uh, doesn't is not a, a pressing issue for Japanese <coughs> economy. But uh, the, I understand uh, your point, and the, if I interpret your question uh, uh, slightly differently, uh, what is a, what is a way for changing mindset of uh, uh, people? And this is uh, the pertinent uh, question. 
And this leads me to the, uh, the, the third question. Uh, what is the effective policy tool to cope with uh, deflation? And the typical answer, or the typical answer which was uh, uh, given uh, up until recently was just to print money. But uh, we have already experimented with this. We have expand, expanded uh, our balance sheet enormously. But still, the, we cannot uh, witness the increase in inflation rate. And uh, there are two reasons why deflation has proceeded. One is the decline in wage rate, which I explained in my presentation. The flexible adjustment of normal wage was both good and bad. It was good in the sense that we can maintain the employment. We avoided massive unemployment. This was positive. But at the same time, decline in wage rate was translated into lower prices of services, which are labor intensive. Both are the two faces of the same coin. But anyway, this is one reason why Japan experienced deflation. The second and more fundamental reason is that Japan's uh, growth rate, Japan's potential growth rate is uh, trending down. Given that people can expect that their future income will increase in a steady manner. Therefore, people spend less. And this is translated into deflation. So the, what is needed is the effort, every effort to raise potential growth rate. This is a difficult question, but uh, uh, I'm always pointing to two factors, two measures. One is to increase effective labor supply uh, by increasing the labor participation rate, especially by the female and elderly. The second is to increase uh, productivity. The connotation of productivity, or connotation of in increasing productivity is rather technological one. But uh, the, when we look at uh, productivity in a society or the economy, what is crucially important is to maintain the economic metabolism. To, to shift resources from the less the, the the shift from resources from 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 the area where demand is not increasing to the area where demand is increasing, and this is crucially important to raise productivity uh, uh, in a society. So there is no magic solution, and we have to make every effort to raise. Uh, potential growth rate. And eventually, people uh, start to recognize that growth rate, potential growth rate is gradually increasing. Then people spend more, which is translated into uh, a bit higher inflation rate. Thank you. Uh, gentleman on the end there. Hello, Andrew Milligan's my name. Can I just pick up your last point about whether or not central banks can create inflation? Mm -hmm. You're absolutely right that, of course, the quantitative easing that we've seen in 
the Bank of Japan and here in the UK and the US as well, has been the buying of financial assets. Mm -hmm. But surely central banks can create inflation through actually money supply growth, through in effect providing vouchers to every single consumer in the country uh, to go out and spend by a set date. So there's a social or political decision to be taken about whether or not an economy wishes to create inflation, but surely a central bank can create inflation through credit expansion rather than quantitative easing buying a certain degree of financial assets from a certain part of uh, the financial sector. Thank you. Um, the gentleman at the front row here. Um, good evening, Governor. Uh, my name is Timothy. Uh, you pointed out that the second part of the Japan lost, lost decade is because of the aging population. And if the aggressive monetary policy is, has worked so well, then does that justify the aggressive monetary policy that is being pursued by central bankers all, all around the world? Uh, would that mean that um, f the finance sector should be given a special status because of its um, systemic importance to the whole economy? Uh, such as uh, by giving them a label too big to fail status. Uh, is it really justified? Thank you. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> gentleman in the front row here. <clears throat> uh, Toby Chambers, We Care Foundation. Uh, you mentioned that um, central bankers around the world now have probably reached the limit. Is that an admission that the central banks are actually out of bullets and we can't really solve this problem? <clears throat> Uh, I got a three question, uh, which are more or less the same. So uh, I'd like to answer all these questions uh, 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 simultaneously. The, first of all, the, what is the most crucial role that central bank could play? The, I think the most uh, crucial role played by central bank is to maintain financial system stability. The Japan was faced with deflation, but uh, unlike US in 1930s, Japan did not experience the, the contraction of economic activity. And uh, the very reason why Japan avoided the, the, the severe contraction of economic, economic activity is we maintained the financial system stability. And, and this is, people often talk about monetary policy in narrow sense. Of course, monetary policy is important. But what is more important is to maintain the stability of financial system. The I'm a, the, I was a student at the University of Chicago many years ago, and I took uh, Friedman's last class. Uh, he said two things about role of monetary policy. One is to prevent the money from being the source of instability of uh, the economy. Money performs very useful function, but at the same time, money sometimes uh, becomes a source of instability. Uh, in order to avoid that situation, 
central bank actually lend the last resort in an aggressive manner. And uh, this, remain, this remains uh, true uh, even uh, today. As for narrowly defined monetary policy, the, the distinction between monetary policy and fiscal policy becomes uh, somewhat blurred. That is your uh, point of question. Uh, there is no clear-cut answer to that question. Uh, what Bank Japan did was uh, to engage in some engage in monetary policy with some element of quasi-fiscal policy. Uh, for instance, we bought uh, the stocks held by financial uh, institution because uh, Japanese financial institution held sizable amount of stocks. The one stock price declined, then this uh, the affects the behavior of financial institution in an adversary manner, which in turn affects economic activity. Therefore, we decided on purchasing stocks held by financial institution. And also, uh, we are now purchasing the, the exchange, tra exchange trust fund, real estate trust, etc. This is uh, an orthodox measure. And this is somewhat, uh, the, the, we are somewhat entering into the area uh, uh, affecting the allocation and the, at micro level. When we conduct that kind of monetary policy, uh, we have to be accountable to the general public. So before starting this operation, uh, we, Bank of Japan, uh, describe the general principle for doing this kind of policy uh, measures. But again, there is no clear-cut answer. And, uh, but essentially, what we are doing is buying time. So in the meantime, the government or society have to tackle is the very essence of the uh, problem. The We are the we as a central bank bankers uh, have to think about uh, what central bank should do in difficult uh, times. Uh, that is uh, my answer to the question uh, whether uh, central bank doesn't have <laughs> any bread or more. Thank you. Thank you very much, Governor. I'm afraid I'm going to have to stop it there. We, we have uh, an excess supply of um, questions, and I think that is in large measure, Governor, a tribute to you. Um, we've seen a very thoughtful and wise and experienced and analytical discussion, and I think we've seen just how valuable it is to be able to discuss deeply difficult and serious issues in a quiet and thoughtful way in an academic and non-confrontational environment. That's how we learn and that's how we deepen our understanding of things. And you uh, set the tone for that and you set the substance and the style and the, the deep wisdom that you brought to the table today. And uh, this, I think, is a, a, 
a very valuable tradition amongst policymakers and central bankers to share the difficulties they face, to share the challenges, and to share the analysis and the comparisons between different circumstances in the way that you did. It was greatly valuable to us. It was a great privilege to the LSE that you chose to come here to have this discussion. And uh, we're very proud that you did and very grateful that you did. And thank you very much indeed, Governor. Thank you. Thank you very much.